Good afternoon. I'm Alicia Anstead, sitting in for Callie Crossley, and this is The Callie Crossley Show. My guest today is artist Alex Katz. He's known for his boldly colored paintings and prints and cut-out stand-up sculptures. His flat and close-crop style is influenced by movies and fashion and by urban and rural themes. You can see his work up close at an exhibition of his prints now at the MFA. Alex Katz, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Um, You're joining us from New York City, where you were born and where you grew up. Um, I know your mother was an actress who loved poetry and your father was a businessman. Were the arts always a part of your life? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. We we have paintings on the walls, and uh, the, the parents appreciated art. Did you did you and attend? Al- did you also attend performing arts as a young man? Uh, no, uh, I went to a, a, a school that's that's, uh, a com- that's taught commercial art, uh, so you could uh, do the academics in the day, and uh, and I could, uh, I could do artwork in the afternoon. So how did you know, Alex, that you wanted to be an artist? Was it obvious from when you were a little boy, or was there something that happened that thrust you into the world of visual art? I don't know. I think I was interested in a lot of things, but the <clears throat> I always did artwork, and um, I got more interested in as I got older. I guess I cut uh, – when I went to um, the uh, vocational high school, I cut, I cut it. I mean, that was serious. Right. And and I had read somewhere that you also had had aspirations to, at, at some point, be a dancer. I know you're you're a tall, no. lanky fellow. Um, that's no, I like dancing. Yeah. <laughs> I always liked dancing, and uh, that, that was it. Someone asked me, what would you be if you weren't a painter? I said, well, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind being a dancer. Did you ever think about doing something other than painting? Mm, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I was I was I was more I was, most of the people studying commercial art, and that's what I thought I would be—an illustrator or a commercial artist. Mm-hmm. I, I drifted into fine art uh, when I got into Cooper Union. <coughs> and Cooper Union seemed, is is one of the great art schools in New York City. Yeah, you know they have a, it's, it's 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 hard to get into as Harvard. Mm-hmm. It's harder really because it's all uh, has to do on scores. I mean, relationships don't mean anything there. So it's, it's a, it was a difficult school to get into, and it was a difficult school to stay in. We had thirty percent never made it through there. It was a hard school. What, what was so hard about it, Alex? <clears throat> well, it was. Um, it was it was in the forty second. Well, all the veterans came back. Mm-hmm. It was extremely competitive, including you. You also served in the military. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was in for a, for a year, and uh, so one third of this uh, of the of the, of the um, students were uh, veterans, and the average age must have been twenty one or twenty two mm-hmm. in the freshman class, and they, everyone was very serious. And, and was there a sense when you were at Cooper Union that you would leave that educational experience with a career? Well, that was the idea of the school. Mm-hmm. The school basically thought that the fine arts were just something to help you be creative. They didn't think there was any career in it. And the school was Bauhaus-oriented socially, so it meant they wanted the arts to function in society. And the fine arts did not function in society. Mm-hmm. It was like a fugitive activity. <laughs> so, so that hasn't changed too much. Um, well, that has changed. How, how has it changed? Well, the, 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 um, it's a respectable occupation. It's a career now. They give, they give uh, doctorates in painting. Well, of course, it has. Uh, certainly in the academic level, I was thinking more socially how difficult it is to be an artist right now. Well, it's... it's, 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 it's um, it's ex- extremely competitive, mm-hmm. uh, but there are a lot more more people entering into it, and I think um, it has has problems. But there um, there is uh, people people are having what they call careers. Mm-hmm. Where w- when I started, if you were in um, like uh, avant-garde or far out painting, uh, there was just nothing in front of you. Was there? Was there? Okay. Were there luminaries at that moment, Alex, from from older eras that were still hovering in the air at Cooper Union at that time? Picasso, mm. Matisse. Yeah, it was basically uh, uh, the, basically the school was uh, Brock was considered the best painter, mm-hmm. and uh, but and Picasso was considered pretty good, <laughs> and uh, and we, we were, they they taught sort of cubism in the design mm-hmm. classes, so it was like Bauhaus and cubism. 
mm-hmm. is what they were teaching. And uh, it was like a um, New York. You have to realize at that time was a provincial a provincial city, and uh, Paris is where all the uh, big time painting was. And and if it, tell tell our readers if I mean excuse me our listeners please um, about Bauhaus and and Cubism how how would you describe each of those for our listeners who may not know what they are? Well, uh, well, uh, Bauhaus is like was a, a German school must have started in the twenties and they were uh, basically against a high fine art they wanted to make uh, art for people. And uh, they were into furniture and book designs, clothing design, and everything. And it was everything was very modern. It was like uh, an absolute, absolute modernist place. And the painting were there was more or less that too. Uh, Cubas, uh, Cubas came from um, uh, developed out of Cezanne, really, and it's basically. Um, uh, deconstructing objects into into space and using the whole uh, four corners. In other words, the um, corners are as important as the center. I know that you went from Cooper Union to Maine um, to the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in mm. 1949 and 1950, and that must have been a some type of turning point for you, Alex. What what captured your imagination there? Because you've had ever since those years a, a, a relationship with Maine. What was it that happened at Skowhegan? Well, Skowhegan was like a. a uh, there were two types of painting in the, in the United States: a regional painting and and provincial modern painting. And regional painting was absolutely of no interest to me. And Skowhegan uh, uh, was pretty much a regional regional school. And um, I was having a hard time with doing modern painting there. And someone uh, there was a lot of uh, camaraderie. I had a lot of friends, and they would go out in trucks and paint the landscape. You know, mm-hmm. I never did it, so I tried it. And uh, I started to paint faster than I could think. And uh, instead of painting, like when Cooper would take me about 18 hours to do a painting, I was doing a painting in a couple of hours. I was painting really fast. And I really, uh, the the act of painting there was electric. And I said, well, I don't care if I'm a genius. I thought that was a thing. You know, it was from the 19th century, you were born geniuses. I knew I didn't have that kind of talent. Mm But I said, I really like doing this, and this is what I'm going to do, and I don't care what happens. You know? Right, I'd right. Pay the, you know, that's the way. Uh, as far as the paintings themselves, they weren't, any, they weren't any better than the ones I did in school. You know, they, right. were, they, were, they were more fluid, but they were really old-fashioned. I didn't want to make old-fashioned paintings. Alex, do you know what happened to you there? Was it not just the camaraderie and being outdoors? I mean, many artists have spoken to me about the light in Maine, that it's different from other places. Well, it's different from New York City, and I like the light. (laughs) And the the colors are richer. And I like the fact I could paint outdoors. It was sort of a natural thing. They have a lot of painters in Maine, Mm -hmm. and it's just another occupation like a carpenter or something. And I, I, there's a story. Uh, there was a guy who did some plumbing for us. Uh, we had a second-hand shop. And I met him 30 years later. And he said, Alex, are you still painting? <laughs> and I said, well, I try to keep my hand in it. <laughs> yeah, but, there's there's something real about that, isn't there? That's very yeah. that's very um, welcoming in a funny yeah. way because we think of yeah. Mainers as being off-putting sometimes, that Yankee spirit. And yet – no. I'm a painter. That was like a legitimate yeah. occup- occupation, like a carpenter. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that you, you've maintained a great deal of affection for Maine, too. Um, you, you have a home in Lincolnville, and you've mm-hmm. you've housed much of your work at Colby College, which is mm-hmm. you know one of those rare museums in the U.S. devoted solely to a living artist. I mean, a, a wing of it devoted solely mm-hmm. to a, a, a single artist. And Portland Museum of Art as well has your work, Farnsworth. Um, do you think that what happened to you at Skowhegan and your ongoing relationship with Maine now – now, here's the tricky part, Alex – makes you a Maine painter? Oh, a Maine painter? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I think of my – I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think of a Maine painter, I, I think I'm, I'm as good as anyone else, mm-hmm. period. But I think of them on, on, I'm basically on a larger stage. Right. Well, I I think you know Art New England called you the most ubiquitous contemporary artist in Maine, 
Um, well, that's yeah, that's a small place. Right, right, but 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 as you point out, a place that has been home to and muse for many, many, many visual artists through oh, yeah. the, through the you know hundreds of yeah. years, right? No, it's a fantastically uh, 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 comfortable place for a painter. Mm-hmm. You know, and lots mm-hmm. of painters go there. How often are you and, there, Alex? I go there for about three months. I'm, I'm leaving on the 22nd of June. I come back about the 10th of September. And it's not a winter place for you at all, is it? No, mm-hmm. no. I went up there in the winter. It's, it's really nice in the winter. Mm-hmm. But but I just soon go to the Bahamas or Paris. I was going to say, you think you can get peace and quiet in the summer in Maine. You should go up in about February and really see oh, what I'm peace sure. and quiet no, looks like. It's peace and quiet and very beautiful. I, I like New York City in February, though. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other big influences you've talked about, or several of them, would be films and television and billboard advertising of the 1960s, early on in your career. Mm, yeah. But I never hear you say what films or what. Oh, it was, it was, it was uh, you know, with, with the films, it was like how to, you know, basically when I, when I um, got to the flat backgrounds and the single figures in the late 50s, Mm-hmm. That was like a radical move, and I got a lot of people liked him, a lot of people hated him, you know. Right. But that, I thought they were a little traditional in the um, the figure to the frame. I wanted to make get images that were were more radical, and I start going to these. Um, I, I would I had a job, you know. I worked a couple of days a week carving frames, and I, after work I would just go to the theater, pay money, and walk in. And I was most I was looking at westerns. And long westerns, they would have the, a big face on one side and a landscape on the other. And I couldn't think of any old paintings that had those kind of breakups. So I was looking at that. And the same thing with the billboards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to make – I'm trying to make something that looked, looked new. We're, and these gave me these gave me access to a new, 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 a, a new bunch of images. Are, are there older, more, you know, kind of what we think of as maybe classic painters like Rembrandt or along those lines who have also been in your thoughts of, as you do your work? Well, yeah, if, if you work with the, – the thing is that um, uh, um, absolute modernism means you can only work with what has previous happened, mm-hmm. you know, and you make something that uh, you don't take baggage with you. But I feel that anything is, 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 that interests you is okay. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, I've been influenced by Tutmos, the Egyptian sculptor from mm-hmm. Nefertiti. I've been influenced by Udomaro. I've been influenced by Brady photos of the Civil War. I certainly looked at, at Rembrandt. He's, he, he does some things. He, he does things marvelous. The drawings are just terrific. And I looked at you know a lot of a lot of painting and and, and, and been influenced by an awful lot of different things. Well, Alex, I'd like to talk with you a little bit more about about what it means to see and how you see um, the world around you. We we need to go to a break, um, but when we come back, uh, we'll talk to you more about ways of seeing. Um, my my guest is artist Alex Katz. A retrospective of his work is now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts through July 29th. When we come back, we'll also be joined by Sebastian Smee, a Pulitzer Prize winning art critic for the Boston Globe. The Alex Katz conversation continues on WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and one SIM card mobile voice text and data service for budget conscious international travelers. One SIM card lets you manage the expense of using your cell phone while traveling in over 200 countries without any commitments. Online at onesimcard.com. And Blake and Associates, attorneys focused on individual matters, individual advice, and individual solutions. They listen, they understand the issues you face when assisting a vulnerable loved one. More info at blakelaw.com. And the growing number of WGBH sustainers who manage their contributions to public radio with the help of monthly installments and automatic renewals. Learn more about the ease of sustaining membership at WGBH.org. I'm Marco Werman. Refugees from Syria have flooded into neighboring countries, including northern Lebanon. As much as they might want to help their brethren back home, some say they can't go back. Two of them, they went back and they were arrested. They were jailed and they disappeared. They don't know anything about them. Syrian refugees stuck in Lebanon, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH.
The June community campaign has ended here at WGBH. Isn't that great? Super. Really, really cool. And you are responsible for its great success. For other ways to support your community through WGBH, visit WGBH.org slash volunteer. And thanks. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2 here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to The Callie Crossley Show. I'm Alicia Anstead sitting in for Callie. I'm joined by artist Alex Katz. A retrospective of his work is on view at the MFA through July 29th. Sebastian Smee is also with us. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning art critic for the Boston Globe. Alex Katz's bright and bold realism is infused with a kind of exuberance about modern life. As Sebastian Smee puts it in a recent review in The Globe, Katz shares a love of the urban vernacular, a feeling for everyday rhythms, a penchant for summers in New England, and a relish of the benign, the banal, and the commercial, even as the heart valves remain open to the tangy, the bittersweet, the effinescent. Um, Alex Katz, welcome back. Sebastian Sini, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, Alex, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about how you see um, how you look at the world when you decide that something is worthy of being painted. How how do you see a topic, a subject, well, or a theme? Well, some uh, part of seeing comes from ideas about art, <clears throat> and you have an idea what art should be, and then when you see something, it um, correlates with what your ideas are, and <clears throat> and uh, it, it, the the problem started, I guess, when I was in art school. I'm painting on a river, and I'm painting a painting that looks really nice. It's like a bonard with a blue river. And I look up, and there's a guy on the roof, roofing, and the sun's hitting him, and it's like fantastic looking. And I look at my painting, and it's just a piece of nice art. You know, mm-hmm. I threw the painting away a couple of years later. But it was that flash of light that I, that I wanted. And you you have to realize <clears throat> that one sees... One thinks one sees with one's eyes, but the the reality of it is you see culturally. Your, your culture tells you what you're seeing, and you think if you see something that it's permanent. It isn't permanent. It keeps changing, and so that's what the the the, 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 the that presented that problem to me there. And I've been working, trying various solutions to that ever since. You know. Does it does it mean, what, does it require a certain discipline of your eye that you keep looking that you look a certain way? No, it just it just sort of like uh, happens through your unconscious. You have to realize like um, a great part of every person is hidden from them, and that's what I'm trying to. Uh, the unconscious assimilates it. Assimilated the cast drawing I did. It assimilated the cubism. It assimilated all all the hard work I did. All the drawing. It's all assimilated, and it comes out just like spontaneous, and, and it's, it's an intuitive process. And the uh, idea of what I was doing was completely – it felt like that's what I should be doing, mm-hmm. and it didn't make any sense in the world. So when you see something, is that image taken into your consciousness and goes and yeah. going through a gestation period before it reappears in your voice? Well, once I see it, I paint it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm I'm in my loft and I'm looking out the window for 20 years, and all of a sudden there's a big click. Mm-hmm. I see something, and the only problem I had should it be 11 feet square, 11 and a half feet <laughs> square, or 12 feet? There was no other problem, and that's the start of the dark paintings. Right. The, I was looking the, the, for those, something. Those are the more yeah, recent ones, for, right? That are at yeah, the yeah. That started right in the 90s. In the 90s. Uh-huh. And things go that way. You you have a thing of you look you in the back of your head. Then I was I did go up to Maine once in the winter, and I saw a tree and a little bit of snow on the tree, mm-hmm. and it was like a bingo. Mm-hmm. It was the whole idea of blowing up, uh, making environmental landscapes. 
Have you have it you analyzed kind of, those moments at all, Alex, to to understand what they tell you about yourself, or do you just have to really? No, I don't stay? think about myself. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. think once I see that, I say, "Let's go." Right. So one yeah. of your one of your recurring um, themes or subjects has been your wife Ada, and mm-hmm. um, you know how, how does a person become a muse for you? How did she become your muse? Is she a muse? I guess so. Uh, uh, well. I found it. She came into my life just when I was starting to do portraits, mm-hmm. and the portraits. <clears throat> everyone was um, the abstract expressionist crowd, which I was in, was all about generalities, and I, the philosophy um, uh, always seemed phony, bogus, or unacceptable of most of the guys, and uh, uh, I was in a cafeteria. At four in the morning, and this guy starts talking about the expression in the eyes, and I never heard of anything so weird in my life. And I realized that I was intimidated by the rhetoric not to do, paint anything specifically. So at that point, I had been doing portraits, but they were more generalized. I just wanted to make a more specific in an abstract environment. It was right there because he said it, and I said, well, let's, go, let's try it because my, my painting was okay. But I wasn't wasn't really uh, ha- I didn't feel really really happy with it, and so I started painting people, and then I ran into Ada, and then it was a double thing because I'm emotionally involved. So how can you see something? Mm-hmm. And so I did it. I started in uh, October or November doing portraits of her, and and, and the um, sometime in around May or June, I got one I really liked. It's in Kobe. It's an oval. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, she's a perfect model. I mean, um, uh, she could be... Uh, you can cast her in different roles. You can cast her as a, as a classic as a classic European beauty. She can be a, a Madonna. She can be a swimsuit girl. She could do... You know, she's very flexible. Well, let's let's talk about one of the pieces that's on view at the MFA, the green cap of Ada in a bathing cap. It's it's one of the most um, recognizable of your works, uh, one of the most popular. And I'm going to ask um, our arts critic here, uh, Sebastian Smee, to talk to us a little bit about how he looked at your work when he spent time at the museum going through, and in particular, maybe even looking at this piece specifically. Um, if you're listening and with and are near a computer, you can go to wgbh.org slash Callie Crossley and see Alex Katz's work, The Green Cap of His Wife. Sebastian, tell us what you see when you look at this piece and how you look at it. Well, let me say first, you know, it's a great, a great pleasure and, and privilege to be listening to to, um, to Alex Katz talking here. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to get these insights. And, you know, I went to the show um, and just came out feeling great. I mean, it's, it's such a tremendous show. And you know, I, I think that that Mr. Katz has a real genius uh, for 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 composition and color. I mean, these these sound like dry terms, but you know, when I look at this this picture, it's here in front of me right now, the bathing cap. Um, it's just it's got the most incredible vitality, and it comes almost entirely from from this incredible color combination. I mean, there's this this turquoisey blue. Is it turquoisey? I don't know, but it zings with that 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 green cap. It's just this incredible zing. And then you try and take out another element, the red at the bottom, this little sort of glimmer of red, and you think it would be a completely different image. And and, and then the skin tones as well, this sort of olivey skin. It, it's it's really a tremendous image, and it sort of rides the wall with this authority that you really don't expect from from prints. You know, it's not just the scale. But it's it's Mr. Katz's a, a wonderful sort of cropping and, and and composition. So all of these are kind of formal values, and you talk about them, and it sounds a little dry. But um, wow, he just he knows how to do it. And uh, and I think, as I said, that's probably my favorite picture in the show. And Sebastian, how would you tell other people who are going to the show to to open themselves to Alex Katz's work and and enjoy it with the same? I mean, I think you you, you actually use the word enjoy pleasure in your review several well, times. You repeat these words. I mean, you, you <laughs> had a good time. That <laughs> I really did. I really did. And uh, and and you know, thank Mr. Katz for that. I mean, I, I I've sort of been on 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 tours through Maine myself, and and. Uh, uh, I feel often like it is sort of the Alex Katz tour. There's, there's works of his <laughs> in every museum there, but they go well beyond that. You can see them in museums around the world, obviously. Um, look, uh, you know, I think that, that um, Alex Katz has a, an amazing sensitivity 
to the surface of things. And by that I mean the surface of the pictures themselves, uh, uh, you know, where he has, as I say, this amazing sensitivity to, to uh, arrangements of color and, and saturations of color and, and, uh, and, and form, um, but also to the surfaces of life. You know, I, I loved listening to him describe that anecdote of seeing that flash of light on, on, on the roof. Um, you know, we have a tendency to, to equate the surface of life, the surfaces of life with, with things that are superficial, you know, as a, as a pejorative, a negative. And, and I think that Alex Katz proves that completely wrong. I mean, you can learn just as much about life from paying close attention to the shape of a leaf or uh, the color of a woman's scarf or a flamboyant piece of headwear. You know, I mean, th- these things are full of juice and life and uh, and there's hardly anyone that pays as much attention to them as Alex Katz. I like what you say in particular, Sebastian, about um, going through Maine and seeing these these images that remind you of Alex Katz's work. And I think that in some degree that is the sign of a penetrating work of art, whether it's a, a, a painting or a play or a book or ha- whatever it is, when you go out into the world and say to yourself, I'm having an Alex Katz moment here. <laughs> um, Alex, you've talked about your work as being aggressive, that, that you really want to get into the heads of people with the work. And, and yet I, I find it, uh, of course, I know what you're talking about, but I also in some ways have found it very warm and very inviting, even while I think it's sometimes very cool. Um, how, how do you want us to see your work? Do you have a way of seeing that you'd like people to know about? Well, you, you, you uh, it goes back to uh, uh, you, I want people to see uh, see the world through the artwork mm-hmm. for a minute, because uh, as, as I said, there is no absolute reality. It's a it's a change. And I use these things I say over and over again. When I was a kid, uh, Washington Square was a, a weak impressionist watercolor. <laughs> That's how you saw it. And now it's a movie set. Mm-hmm. When you go to Washington Square in New York, you, you, you've seen it before on TV. And that's how you see it. And uh, uh, the, we're dominated by photography and film. Our vision is dominated by it. And uh, this is... I relate to it, but it's it's like an alternate to photography. It's, I'm really trying to tell you to see everything through my eyes, and that's and that's that's really aggressive. Yes, I I, I understand what you're saying. So here here's here's a little bit of a curveball for you, yeah. Alex. Why should I want to see the world through your eyes? Because I want you to. <laughs> Can you talk well, a little bit it. more about that? Well, it's very willful. Yeah. You know, this is way. You know, this is the way. This is the way I think art should look, and mm-hmm. this is the way I think the world should look. So it's a, it's on two on two levels. It's pushing. Do Do you and, feel that? And and, and 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 the subject matter is is almost banal. So so I, I the subject matter isn't going to give me uh, any edge, any any uh, help. Well, you've said that that. The subject isn't as important to you as the style. Is that the correct? Image. Yeah, it's the image and style is, is what's important. Mm-hmm. The style makes the image. The image is what's important. You see an image, and, it, and it, it's supposed to really register on you. So you, when you come, when you uh, leave, leave the uh, leave the place, those images stay with you. That's right. the thing of a strong image. It'll, it'll stay with you. A good, a, a real good image. If you really get it, stay with you for the rest of your life. The mm-hmm. sunsets disappear. You've said that when you make something new, you never really know it makes sense to someone until you show I it to someone. Um, that's right. How, how, how important is it to you to make sense to viewers? I know that seems like a silly question, but some artists well, don't care. Don't. Well, that's therapy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a professional artist. I'm not involved in therapy. I'm involved in uh, uh, making art for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you extend yourself, you can't be sure of what you're doing. I mean, if I'm doing something that I've done before, sometimes I'm doing it better. And I know that. And I feel great. I said, oh, you really did it. But when I'm stepping out and doing something that I haven't done before, uh, how how can you tell? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you do a piece of writing uh, of something, how can you tell anyone can make sense of what you wrote? If you're writing, if you're doing something that you never did before. And, and and some of those paintings are, um, you know, last like even last last year I, I had you know I had two big paintings that um, 
I certainly didn't have any idea of what I was doing. I mean, I, and I, I didn't have. I knew what I did, what I wanted to do, but I didn't know whether it would mean anything to anyone else. Do you, you know? do you think of yourself as an abstract expressionist, Alex? No, I think of myself as a realist. Mm-hmm. I'm using the uh, grammar from abstract painting. Mm-hmm. I mean, realist, as far as I'm concerned, is up for grabs. Right. It's like almost a matter of opinion because I say to you, is a Rembrandt look like what you're looking at? Mm-hmm. Is a photograph looking uh, give you the thing of what you're looking at? It's all up for grabs. And, and realistic, ab- painting, realistic painting uh, is realistic for a short period of time. And Sebastian, I wanted to ask you, when you see Alex Katz's work, do you see it in conversation with other artists? Are there artists you can see him grappling with or think you see him grappling with? Well, I, I, unquestionably. I mean, uh, you know, Alex has already spoken about, about modernism generally and, and there are aspects of the abstract painters uh, both post-war and even before the war. Um, you know, who, who have associations, I think, with his work. I think of Matisse, obviously, um, especially in terms of, you know, I think Matisse was probably the first artist who came along and, and understood that the size of a given area of colour uh, affects its saturation. So, in other words, a square metre of blue is more blue than a square centimetre of blue. And, you know, I see that principle at work all through uh, Mr. Katz's work and, and love it. Um, you know, I think that, that question of style, just to go back to that, is really interesting. You know, I think a lot of people think of style as a kind of icing on the cake. But, in fact, I think more often it's an ingredient, even the main ingredient in your way of seeing things. And, uh, and I think that... Um, you know, Alex Katz has an incredibly strong style. It's 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 equivalent to a writer's voice, and it's why we recognize his, his images every time we see them. And just like with a writer's voice, I I would say that that voice develops and evolves, and maybe it grapples with the same questions, Alex. You've said that the ideas that you're still working on were there when you were 20, but the energy has changed. You have a different solution now. And I, I wonder if you could encapsulate for us what some of those ideas are and what you've noticed about the progression of your work these some 50, 60 years. Well, you, you try different things, and uh, you, there is no... Uh, uh, I never found a, a truth, you know, an absolute. And I think uh, 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 it made me move, always moving, because I never can get it, never, you can never get the whole thing right. So you keep, uh, the leftover parts is what you chase. So you keep moving, I keep moving, you know. And uh, uh, my paintings are in the last 10 years with the figure groupings are, are Completely different than what I did in the eighties, which I was uh, in the eighties. I was I fooled. I realized in the eighties, like people don't touch each other much in paintings. <laughs> so I did a whole lot of paintings with people touching each other, and I was working with relationships. I was looking at Watteau and Rembrandt, who work out just mm-hmm. very well. Now, in the last ten years, I've been working well, <clears throat> uh, making compositions of isolated people. So that you know, it's like something I hadn't done. It seemed interesting. The paintings are more abstract, and uh, you, you go with it for a while. Then you know you do it, and you get bored or tired, and you try something else. I, I've been pretty more restless than most painters. Mm-hmm. Well, the newest the newest works at the MFA right now are black and white works um, that are, that seem to be not in complete defiance of your full body of work, but but certainly a, a slightly different um, look. Well, basically, the, 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 the uh, work is about light. Mm-hmm. The color makes the light. I can change colors, but basically I'm looking for a kind of light. And I work with, uh, if you go through it, I work with every kind of light. I mean, I've worked with uh, daylight, I've worked with interior lights, I work with incandescent lights, I work with night light, I work with morning light. Noon light, all different. Everything is a light. So the black and white things are more abstract than the paintings have been getting more abstract, and they are more abstract than the paintings. But they they have uh, they're trying to make a light sensation with with the black and whites, and um, they have newer techniques now than they used before in prints, and uh, that that's partially responsible for those 
things. They worked gradually. I did small ones and big ones, and now I'm doing very large ones. I don't know what I'll do after that. <laughs> um, Alex, how, how often are you painting now? I've worked pretty much seven days a week. Mm-hmm. For how many hours a day? Well, it does depend. I, might, might, I don't work irregular hours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I might paint a big painting once a week. I mm-hmm. might do a sketch once a day. That's mm-hmm. a half hour or something like that, or an hour and a half. Uh, the, the days are uh, very different. I, I never could work nine to five. Right. Right. I think maybe that's true for each of us in this room, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, try, I tried it. I tried a nine to five. You know, right. when I first when I first started one summer, we had a, a big summer. And I said, let's let's do it like a job. Nine to five. So I painted nine to five for the whole summer, three months. I think I threw every painting away. <laughs> they, they were all overworked and terrible. It had nothing to do with me. Well, I'm awfully yeah. glad that you found the right process for doing your paintings because we, we are certainly the beneficiaries of your discipline and, and your voice and, and well, your output. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. It's, 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 it's been a, a, a great pleasure to be able to have that show up. You know, in in the United States, and uh, I'm absolutely thrilled with the way the uh, curators at the uh, Boston Museum uh, organized the show and presented it. I couldn't be more pleased. Well, that's artist Alex Katz. A retrospective of his prints is now on view at the MFA through July 29th. Alex Katz, thank you for joining us. I've also been joined by Sebastian Smee. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning art critic with the Boston Globe. You can read his review of the Cats exhibit at wgbh.org slash Callie Crossley. Sebastian Smee, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Coming up next, we talk to Nahant native actor Barbara Terrell. She's now on stage as Yululi McKechnie Shin in a production of The Music Man. You're listening to WGBH Boston Public Radio. program is on WGBH thanks to you and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And Skinner, auctioneers and appraisers. People do look very favorably on our association with WGBH. Stephen Fletcher, executive vice president. I think it's done a lot for our company. It's brought us new faces, new buyers, new consigners. I would most definitely encourage people to consider a sponsorship on WGBH. To learn more, visit WGBH.org sponsorship. On the next Fresh Air, Joan Rivers. Her new book is I Hate Everyone, starting with me. I hate obituaries you will that have, don't tell yeah. you the truth. So you read obituaries like every day. It's one of the first things I, I, Sure, because that's how I meet new men. <laughs> the minute it says Sadie Schwartz. Join us. This afternoon at 2 here on 89.7 WGBH. WGBH Spring Auction has gone into extra innings. Bid to win sought-after gift certificates, home electronics, even Patriots tickets. You could even land an incredible getaway to Chicago, Greece, Jamaica, or any other JetBlue destination. And every winning bid helps WGBH hit it out of the park with more great programs. It's time for extra innings at auction.wgbh.org. WGBH and 89.7 want to ensure a diverse pool of candidates for all of our employment opportunities. Visit the Careers section of WGBH.org to learn more about the exciting opportunities currently available throughout our organization. Welcome back to The Callie Crossley Show. I'm Alicia Anstead, sitting in for Callie. My guest is actor Barbara Terrell. 
The Massachusetts native grew up in the hunt with ambitions of becoming a, the first woman astronaut, but those plans got derailed when she discovered the stage. She joins me to talk about her latest role as Yululi McKechnie Shin in the production of The Music Man, now running at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. Barbara Terrell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alicia. Nice uh, to be here. Good, good. I'm so happy to have you on the show. You're, you, you play Yululi McKechnie Shin. Tell us a little bit about that character, please. Um, Yule- it's Yuleli. She's the wife of the mayor of uh, River City, which is the town that the show takes place in, in Iowa. And um, as such, she has her position to uphold. That's why she has three names, Yuleli McKechnie Shin. And um, so she has a... a a bit of a, um, an artifice about her, a bit of a um, position that she uh, feels of importance in the town. And it's all that that gets rocked and shaken when uh, the music man comes. And change comes, and um, he brings creativity into this town. And, uh, and then that's the journey of the show, is watching how that affects her and everyone else. And Yulele is a larger-than-life character. She sees yeah. herself in... Uh, through big eyes, with big gestures, and she has a big role in her community. Uh, Barbara, you grew up in Nahant. Your father was born in Saugus, your mother in East Boston, and you've talked about growing up around people who were themselves larger than life. Tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like growing up here in the Boston area. Well, my my mom is from a, a large Italian family, the Marmos, and um, my dad from a, a fairly uh, good-sized Irish Italian, I mean Irish family, um, in Saugus. And uh, when either family would get together, uh, there would all there were lots of children, lots of of uh, music and laughter and um, large personalities. And um, especially my Italian side, we never got together without everybody singing. Everybody sang. My uncle, Fred Marmo, had sung with uh, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. in the 40s, so there were professional musicians in the family. And uh, so there was a, a – I grew up around people who loved to entertain themselves and each other and took joy in participating in it and observing it. So as a kid, it was a great thing to be around. Music was just always there and always a communal way of – us coming together and uh, joining in. And from adults to kids, everybody sang and everybody got up and performed and was encouraged. So that was part of what nurtured me early on was just those, uh, that that large um, joie de vivre that I was surrounded with by both these wonderful cultures, the Italian and the Irish. And yet, Barbara, when, when you went to high school, you veered in the opposite direction towards science mm-hmm. and math, and you were going to be the first woman astronaut, as we said yep. earlier, and went to the University of Pennsylvania to study engineering. Yep. And then what happened? Well, my my mom and dad are both chemists. My father was a chem, and, um, was a chem engineer. My father is not with us any longer, Charlie Tyrrell. Um, but uh, my mom, Rose Tyrrell, is a uh, as a chemist, and so I f- followed in their footsteps in some ways because I loved science. But in my senior year of high school, I got dared by somebody to audition for the junior-senior play, and I was not going to say that I was afraid to get up and audition, and so I just did it on a dare. Well, I got cast in the play, and it was my English teacher who was directing it, so I wasn't going to tell him I just auditioned for his play on a dare. I thought, I'll do this play, but I'll never do another play again. Well, needless to say, I hate those words. I loved it. It was scarier than anything else I'd ever encountered, standing up on stage, being being somebody else, walking in their shoes, really trying to figure out what, what do they want and what are, what's their response to this and how do they feel? And finding the answers to that in the words that they say and what they do is, is you know, given to me by the script and trying to bring that to life with other people, the collaboration of it, the audience, all of that. And I went through my first year of college, kind of putting it on a back burner and just looking for outlets of it in the um, extracurriculars of college, like University of Pennsylvania had the pen players. So I would do do things with them. And it turned out to be the only thing I really got excited about. So at the end of my first year, I just thought, you know, 
this may be what I'm supposed to do with my life. And if I don't, if I don't take the chance and try it, um, I will wonder my whole life if I was supposed to. So I transferred to Temple University as a physics major and took one theater course. And that was the end of it. I transferred by the next semester as a theater major. And at the end of that time, um, I still felt I needed a little more. So I, I applied and went over to London and did a year in a drama academy in London. And then I moved to New York, moved in with my sister, Joan Tyrrell, who was at that point um, pursuing a career as an opera singer. And from her brilliant uh, singing and brilliant artistry, I learned everything I I know now about singing. I had a live-in singing teacher. So what happened, happened, Barbara, to all that science? Has it informed you as an artist? It it has informed me in that um, I really haven't – I really – enjoy figuring out every second on stage, every moment, every, there's an analytical part of me that wants to know every single second I'm on stage, what, what is what is happening in this moment in the life? There's not a second that goes by that's not, for me, um, it connected to, to the what's happening on, in, the, in the life of that character and making sure I figure that out, what it is. Um, but I also, it, there were sections of my life that I've given up performing and used um, that other side of me. I created a not-for-profit with my sister Joan called Children of Hope, which used creating as a tool to raise self-esteem in children who are living in New York in homeless hotels and in foster care and children with cancer, migrant children. So I sort of stepped out of the performing end and went into the you know, running a business end, which used everything I knew of science, math, you know, all that to run this corporation. And then I came back to performing. Um, so they kind of go hand in hand. I've always been a teacher. I teach for NYU right now. I am a teach first year acting there. So it's a part of me that's always uh, pulling and tugging on both of them or having a little bit of both in there. Um, and that makes me, that, that completes me because I think... Uh, I, I think that you, as a performer, it's extremely um, fulfilling for me, extremely fulfilling. But I'm here every day because today I choose to do it, not because of a long-term plan about it. And there have been times when I've gone, I want to focus on another area of this wonderful creative you know, career. Barbara, your your, your character, Yulele, um also is kind of running a town. And I'd love to listen to a little bit of your performance of her uh, and let let our our listeners hear what you sound like on stage. Okay. She made brazen overtures to a man who never had a friend in the town until she came here. Oh, miser Madison. Miser Madison. Madison Gymnasium, Madison Picnic Park, Madison Hospital. That miser Madison. Exactly. Who did he think he was anyway? Well, I should say so. <laughs> Show off. Gave the town the library too, didn't he? That's just it. When he died, he left the library building to the city. But he left all the books to her. She was seen going and coming from his place. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Hmm. That woman made plays and overtures, which a few kids shall repeat. She had golden twins in her eyes and silver boots with a counterfeit ring. Just melt her down and you'll reveal a lump of lead as we are listening to my guest, Barbara Terrell, as Yulele McKechnie Shin in the Music Man at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. And the song, as many of you know, is Pick a Little, Talk a Little. And in, in this show, um, in this particular scene, you're, you're condemning um, Marion, the librarian, for her relationship with another townsperson. And Yulele goes, yeah. goes through quite a transformation in this show. Tell us a little bit about what we can learn from Yulele's transformation in this show. Well, I... Uh, the, the second number in the show is called Iowa Stubborn. It introduces the attitude of these people. They're stubborn. And and many of us are. We, we're set in our ways. We are, they Iowa well. stu- are they Iowa stubborn like Boston Yankee stubborn? Absolutely. It's like I totally identified with it because I know <laughs> Boston Yankee stubborn. What I love about m- what I've always associated with myself in terms of my Bostonian upbringing and what it says to me is, you know, uh, I think of myself, or I think of us as Bostonians, we will give you the shirt off our back. We will we will do anything for you if if we of your if we like you, if you're honest, if we're you know, if we're connected to you, you turn if we shut the door on you, we've shut the door. It's like we we we're there or we're not there. And um but we're real honest and we're real upfront about it. There's nothing there's no artifice. It's like 
we're right there, or you turn on us and we're not. And there's a stubbornness to the Iowa that, that is very uh, similar to, to that in this play. But the other component of it is I think that sometimes that stubbornness reveals that people stay in their comfort zone. I know where I know who I am. I know my position. Eulalie knows her position in this town. The other women look up to her. It's because she's the mayor's wife. Everything. And people stay in that safe place because they care what other people think. And when you can get past that fear that I might look foolish, I'm going to do something people don't expect, I'm going to surprise myself, I'm going to set a goal for myself or try something, I don't even know if I'm going to be good at it. When you can get past all that fear, suddenly you're limitless. And what the music man brings into this town is that kind of stimulation and and that possibility. And so he awakens in these people that sense of um, limitlessness that we have when we're children before we care what other people think and we get frightened about their disappointment or us not looking as good as we want. And I I think it's tied to, you know, the, the whole concept we can't make mistakes, we can't be wrong, we're always supposed to be perfect, you know, and when you stop doing that and go, yeah, so, gee, I look foolish, but I tried. Or, you know, yeah, you know, I changed my mind on that. I, I made a mistake. I thought that one thing, now I think something else. When you can start becoming comfortable with that, the world opens up to you. And that's what I think is the bigger lesson in this, is that these people start to open themselves up to all the other colors of their lives. And he brings that with music. There's a wonderful metaphor for it in, in that he takes these four members of the school board who have been fighting and hating each other for 15 years and they become a barbershop quartet and that way of making music together listening working together on that brings them together it's a metaphor for um how the whole town is um affected by him he brings us together in ways we we weren't before. Well, Barbara, I'm really glad to hear you talk about Boston and your upbringing here as foundational for the work you're doing now. And thank you for being on the show today. Um, I've been speaking with actor Barbara Terrell. She plays Eulalie McKechnie Shin, the mayor's wife in The Music Man. It's on stage through July 22nd at the Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. Barbara Terrell, thank you for joining us. You're so very welcome. Thank you for asking me. I'm Alicia Anstead, in for Callie Crossley. Callie will be back tomorrow. The Callie Crossley Show is a production of WGBH. We're a Boston public radio. Farewell, ladies.